a hearty welcome to you from all of us at the Let's Give a Damn podcast. And by all of us, I mean me and my producer, Chad. He's awesome, and we welcome you. We have a fantastic conversation queued up for you today. Before we get going, a couple of things. Number one, I'm recording this intro on January 26th. Just a few short hours ago, Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and seven others died in a helicopter crash in Southern California. Incredibly tragic. It's been a hard day for so many. I'm not a basketball fan or Lakers fan, but I've heard his name and seen him play for a good chunk of the last 20 years. And Gianna was only 13. Super sad. And here's what I want to share with you. Kobe, Gianna, and a, around 150,000 people died on January 26 around the world. Friends, we aren't guaranteed another minute on this earth. So please, today, make that phone call, send that text, give that hug, give a damn. Don't wait, because life is short and fragile, and I know I talk about this all the time, but it's worth repeating over and over, because most of us are living like we have decades to live, and maybe we do have decades, but we may only have minutes. So make the most of it, fellow damn givers. And rest in peace to Kobe and Gianna and the other seven, and so much love to Vanessa and the family. Number two, my conversation last week with Josh Radner struck a chord, and not just because he is famous or because of How I Met Your Mother fans, it went deeper than that. Josh is smart, empathetic, and spiritual, and all of that resonated so deeply with y'all. I got so many emails and texts and DMs and mentions on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. It was crazy. I've been keeping up with y'all, and it's been super, super fun. So thanks to Josh for the chat. Thanks to you for listening, and keep spreading the word. Last, we thank the Russell Hotel in Nashville for letting us use their podcast studio to record this conversation that you're going to hear today. If you're ever in Nashville and looking for a place to stay, consider staying at the Russell. Their rooms are amazing, and your stay at the Russell will help the homeless community in Nashville. How, you ask? Through their Rooms for Rooms program. A portion of your stay will go to help several amazing organizations in Nashville do their work more effectively. That is a win-win for everyone. So please check out the Russell at russellnashville.com. Okay, now for our guest this week, Jamil Campbell-Gooch. Jamil is a native of Nashville. That is, his family has been part of this state since before it was actually a state when it was part of North Carolina over 200 years ago. Jamil is a violence interrupter in the 37208 zip code in Nashville. You'll learn more about what that means. This brother gives so many dams, and you're about to hear about some of them. Get ready to drink from a fire hose, my friends. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the incredible Jamil Campbell Gooch. Let's go. How can I start a brand new behavior? And that's just tough because we commonly treat behavior like it's a thing of will. You know what I'm saying? Sure. We say like, yep. I heard a clip of, um, and I'm blanking on his name, but him saying like, do it now. You know what I'm saying? Like motivational speakers go, yeah. do it now. Just make the decision right now and tomorrow will be better. But what happens is. It's not real life, bro. No. Our brains don't work like that. No. It's like, we're going to do it now, and then it ain't going to last. Yep. We, we get it all the time, especially on Facebook with our friends trying to make goals. 
and they're doing it to pressure themselves into changing their behavior. But then they feel shame when they don't live up to it. So mm-hmm. it just fucks the whole thing up just automatically. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing that, if we taught you how to do that early on, right, incentivized it, positive reinforcement, then your brain would easily just do that. Mm. It would just easily just make a new habit or if we just made the thing easier for yourself. Like I just discovered this thing called uh, shortcuts on iPhones. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, it makes shit just so press up a button, just do it. Yep. Right? And so that just changes the behavior. Uh, And that's some stuff that we study all the time, especially with violence. Because when you add friction to something, any type of friction, sure, it makes it harder. Mm. Therefore, it teaches your brain it gives it a second to think, okay, I don't want to do this, mm. right? So if you have like a, what's an easy addiction that a ton of people struggle with but don't want to talk about it? Porn? Yes. So if you have like a porn addiction, mm-hmm. right? Mobile porn. Mm-hmm. If yeah, it's with take, us everywhere. If you take your device and make it where it has a block on it, mm-hmm. then when you try to check into it, it blocks you, mm-hmm. you're going to think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. I actually want to change this. So you, the likelihood of you not doing it just rolls. Rolls exponentially. You could still get around it. Most of those blocks you absolutely, can get around. Absolutely. But you've got a second. You've got a hurdle that you've got to get over if you want to take the extra step. Versus before, it's like you just get on, you do it, yeah, and it's done. Yeah. Yeah. So I got some notes right here. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because I wanted to, I mean, I love this podcast. I love this platform. I appreciate I love that. The let's give a damn the whole branding. You know, Appreciate what I'm saying? It. the whole idea yeah. behind it. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, yeah. and we could talk about this all. Sure. Would you ever consider doing a network? Uh, like a network of podcasts. Like, let's give a damn network. Sure. Um, yeah, possibly. Yeah. I mean, the that's you know here here's what I'll say. Yeah. The the let's give a damn brand. Yeah. It hasn't exploded. It's not like this global thing, but it has resonated so deeply with people. Sure. I mean, people now. I mean, all all day. You know, all day, every day. I get messages. You know, in the past couple of weeks, people have started following from you know places like Rwanda and yeah. France, and yeah. I'm getting messages from all over the place. People checking in and saying like, "Hey, I'm out here somewhere out in the world," yeah. and what you're saying and doing like resonates so deeply. I think it's you know, and it it's not super belligerent i'm not saying like let's you know and it, it would be probably appropriate to say let's give a shit or let's give a fuck or something like that for sure. but it's 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 it hits people enough uh-huh. that it makes them think about it because damn okay, it's, is it okay for me to cuss oh yeah yeah okay, go great. go i mean i dude, am a cusser no okay. people there are certain guests i've had on that are like super in against it and then others that are it's just it's every other word and mm-hmm. i wanted to i want people to feel super free everybody everybody already expects it they know mm-hmm. it could happen so be be you um, so yeah, yes, I, I mean, sure. Yeah, I would, I would consider it. Okay. No, I love to have that conversation. Let's have you. it offline and maybe, maybe for sure. those listening will see the fruit of that conversation at some point. Um, well, let's start, let, let's do this. We've mm-hmm. already gone for a few minutes. I'm going to keep probably all of that in there because I think some of the stuff we already talked about is super helpful, for but sure. people don't know who the hell you are. Yeah, 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 let's yeah. tell them who the hell okay. you are. So st- as much or as little as you want to, who are you? How did you get to like, stop short of Gideon's army, stop short of the work you're doing now. Give us context for who you are. So my name is Jamel Campbell Gooch. I am from Which is a dope name, by come on, let's just that. I Appreciate I that's that. like your name name. That's not like a Yeah, that's like that's that's my whole entire name. Yeah. If you Google that shit, I'm gonna pop up all over the place. Yeah. But <laughs> very specifically, like my young people, I go by whatever name 
Gucci man is currently going by okay. with my young folks. Yeah. So they call me WAP, Goo WAP, uh, East Atlanta Santa. They give me every single name that Gucci is going by. That's amazing. My last yeah, name sure. is Gucci, right? Yeah. So it usually sticks better. But if you see me on the streets or in a professional sense, call me Jamel. You Jamel. call me Gucci. Do not call me Gucci. Okay. That gets a little awkward, especially in a school setting because <laughs> my students are yelling it out across the hallway. And the shit's just weird. So my name is Jamel Campbell Gooch. I am from Nashville. My family has always been here. Uh, we've been here since 1794, two years before Tennessee becomes a state. It is still a territory of North Carolina. Um, and I do this social justice work. Well, I wear a lot of hats around the city. So on one hand, I'm a violence interrupter with Gideon's Army. I'm also the deputy director of Gideon's Army, and I am the second vice chair of the Community Oversight Board. So I do a little bit of everything. You do a little bit. Okay, so you you went from, you've been here for 200 and something years to kind of like present day. So did you ever leave, or or did you just kind of stick around here in like, I mean, I've been in Nashville for two years, so you've got, you guys have got me beat by, you know, not just two (laughs) centuries, but like your whole life of being here. This, This place is deeply yours. For sure, and I wanted to make sure I sent them my ancestors before I ever start, because that's that's kind of the fire that I use to do the work that I do is just I feel very much so ancestrally attached to this land. Yeah. I mean, both sides of my family have always been here mm. as far as just like enslavement, you know, uh, and as free people. We migrated all around the state and we have historically been here through every single thing. Right. So I have ancestors that served in the Civil War, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam. Insane. Buffalo Soldier. I got ancestors all over the place. I got one ancestor that left during the, I want to say, and if somebody's on this pod, listening to this podcast and it is a historian, I apologize because I didn't check my notes before. But I had one ancestor that was involved in a conflict on the border of Texas and Mexico, the Mexican-American War, and never came back. Hmm. So, I mean, two things happened there, right? Either... He left, realized that it was some black people outside of the South. Yeah, sure. Found some more social mobility and was like, oh, I'm just going to stay right here. Sure. Or he died, but there's no record. No record. Literally just disappeared. And then I got ancestors that went up north, came back down here. So it's like every single historical event that takes place in America, my family participates in some sort of way. It's insane. That's not my story at all. Maybe we talked about that when we hung out, you know, like I'm the son of a I'm I'm a son of an immigrant who came here from Guatemala and so like we like we're only a couple decades old being sure. here, you know? Sure. And before that it was all over Europe and Central America, you know? And so we're kind of new to here, uh-huh. you know? And you've been here since really the the beginning. Yeah. I mean, the beginning. Yeah, and my family is directly I have a an ancestor who was purchased by Andrew Jackson in 1794. And so Andrew Jackson is a land speculator when he purchased my 10 times great-grandmother. Her name is Old Hannah, mm. right? And so Andrew Jackson is a land speculator. That's how, that's how he makes the majority of his money. So he kind of gets the inside track on what's about to become a state. So when Tennessee is about to become a state, he makes large purchases of slaves, which include my 10 times great-grandmother and her daughter, Bet, which is probably short for Elizabeth. And through those, a bunch of the 
slaves who were enslaved at the Hermitage Plantation are born. Like she has something like 15 children, right? She is considered like the lead cook in the entire plantation. So that's really what I attack the day-to-day work with. It's just like that ancestral attachment, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That value, that placement, being here for that long and actually having the things, right? So, no, I mean, I get that because I, you know, we've lived here for two years and I, I, we've, we've been involved in so many things here. We've worked with refugees and, you know, I um, helped campaign for, you know, John Cooper. Like we've, we've done different things here, but it's very, sh- like our, our, our love for this city is shallow because we've only been here for two years. You can't love something that deeply after just being here. And I've traveled a ton these past two years. Like I'm, I'm I, up until recently, I was not here all that much. And you've got the opposite thing where, I mean, the, the Campbell Gooch uh, roots are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they're probably in more, you, you have yet to discover all the places that your family has touched and built and, you know, grown into. How many family, like how many family members are here? Oh, I have a lot. So two places. So, uh, so I did my ancestry. So I graduated from Tennessee State University in 2015. That's a historically black college in Nashville. Uh, began as Tennessee A and I began as an actual Union fortification during the Civil War. It became an HBCU. Most of our HBCUs, our historically black colleges, began as a Union fortification. Mm. By the way, um, and then they became normal schools, which taught formerly enslaved to read and write. So it's the the idea at the beginning was education, access to education was reparations, which is kind of a fucked up idea. You it's know wild. What I'm saying? Like it's wild. We're going to give you reparations in the form of learning how to read and write, right? Which is wild as fuck. Um, yeah, that's a basic human right. Exactly. But into, that's why I read every book I possibly can. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. 2015, I graduated from Tennessee State University with a degree in history, right? Very specifically, archival research and Civil War history. And so what I decided to do, because my mom is probably the oldest person in my family, uh, is just research my ancestry, right? Mm. There were all, there's all this folklore around my family. There's all these just like basic family shit. But I yeah, wanted to take yeah. it one step deeper because I've never met any of my grandparents. They were all gone by the time I got here. Um, and so I took like two years, 2015 to 2017, to research my family history. And what I was looking for is a bill of sale, right? Because if you can get a bill of sale, then you can look at the person that's selling the property, figure out where they're from, Mm. track it to the place that they're buying their slaves from, track that back to a port in Africa, and then track that port in Africa to a place that they're getting their enslaved Africans from. So just just so we're clear here, because I'm, Uh I'm, I'm, just so we're clear, this bill of sale we're talking about is for people. It's for yes, they're, they're for, I think most people got that, but I want to yeah. make that clear. Not a bill of sale for uh, groceries or right. buying a, a house or whatever. We're talking you're for people. a receipt for a person, a person, right? And then you're gonna track whoever the broker is back, and then you're gonna track that place back, right? Yeah. There's also insurance companies. So there's a whole. How can I explain this? Um, one thing that is lost about enslavement and i know this is very heavy and this is gonna get lighter as we go but one thing i don't need it to let's get it heavy let's get crazy so one thing that is just like lost about enslavement is that there's a whole industry built on it right entertainment any any type of industry that's built now when slavery is prevalent is built on top of that 
because that is the major money maker here. Mm. So uh, there's whole insurance companies that are created to insure slaves to go from Africa to here. Whole insurance companies, right? So if you can figure out the broker, Mm -hmm. you can figure out the insurance company of the boat, then you can figure out where that boat ports at in Africa, and then you can figure out where that port gets its enslaved Africans from. And so hopefully by deduction, you can find out like a general area of where your people are from. So when I set out on this journey, I was actually setting out to change my last name to wherever that place was, right? So if it turned out to be somewhere in Nigeria, like Yoruba land, I would have just changed my last name to Yoruba land. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because I definitely wanted that connection, that further ancestral connection, sure. like all sure. the way. Yeah. Um, and just the whole idea of separating from my colonizer, because Campbell and Gooch are European last names. I got that from somebody who owns somebody else. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Um. And so I set out on that journey for two years. Uh, and the first time I showed up at our state archive, I told the guy what I was doing because he, I mean, new people don't come around often. So it was, they were just curious on why this 6'3 black guy was down here looking through these old books. I was telling him, like, yeah, I want, I'm looking for a bill of sale. And he just looked at me like, that's going to be tough. Mm. He was like, those, a lot of those purchases were illegal. A lot of the records are sloppy. Mm. And so it's going to be like finding a needle in a haystack. Fast forward two years, I found it. Whoa. And that bill of sale had a couple names on it, right? The major name was Andrew Jackson. So I took my family on one side, and I just tracked matriarch, patriarch. So I didn't get caught up in the cousins. Mm, Sure. That's all. You know what I'm saying? And it landed me two places, right? The Hermitage Plantation in Rutherford County, Tennessee, right? So at one point in time, Rutherford County was owned by a series of individuals, but the majority of land was owned by a family named Gooch, right? So if you Google Goochland, Virginia, you're going to find another area called Goochland, Virginia County. And so what happened was William Claiborne Gooch served in a Revolutionary War, and out of compensation for his participation, he got a piece of land in Virginia, which would become Goochland Plantation, and he bought eight slaves, right? Mm-hmm. When he dies, one of his sons, John Claiborne Gooch, who's a physician, a doctor, takes a couple of slaves and moves to Tennessee, what was North Carolina at the time, and settles in Rutherford County, Right. And he becomes what they call a planter. So he's your traditional aristocratic slave owner, right? So you have, like, different sizes of plantations. You have, like, a smaller one Mm. where you might have, like, eight, right? In the north, you have body doubles, which are essentially, like, slaves that are bodyguards. So you might only have, like, one or two or three of those. Mm -hmm. But in the south, you would have, like, smaller plantations that maybe had eights, but then you had like a planter. That's 100 to 150 slaves. So both sides of my family come off of plantations that size. And so that's why I was, once I got to slavery, that's why it was super easy. Or let me say it like this. It was, you could see the pathway to get there. Sure. So it wasn't easy, but you could see how you could get there. But I'm not going to lie. 
the experience of going through. Also, some of these records are not digitized. So I'm looking at audits, essentially, of like Fortune 500 companies. So if anybody out there owns a Fortune 500 company, that's what I'm looking through. But just from 1860, 1850, 1840, handwritten, French spellings. So sometimes my name is spelled several different ways, right? Depends on where the person writing it is from. So sometimes they spell Campbell with a K. Sometimes they spell it with a C. Sometimes they spell Gooch with a U, one O. You know, all these kind of Very, Yeah, tons of variations. Tons of variations. So that's why these are not archived because you got to physically look through them. And the whole process at some point was like super dehumanizing. You know what I'm saying? Oh, sure. I can't even imagine. I'm looking through receipts for people. Yeah, receipts for people. But I mean, I'm flipping through them. I'm just like, okay, not it, not it, not it. Tons and tons and tons. Not it. it. At one point in time, I'm researching shit so old that I have to request to look at it. And the person. It's so delicate and rare, whatever. And the person who's bringing the book out has like fine gloves and has to turn the page while I stand over their shoulder and read it. And, but I will say the level of empowerment I felt when I found the bill of sale. Like I was not gonna stop. It was it wasn't gonna be any compromise in this. It was yeah. just like I hadn't worked for two years. I was barely scrounging up a living. But it's just like I have to find this document. So I'm a I'm a I'm a lead you through the day. So I show up to the archive. I'm like, okay. I done been through so much shit at this point. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like I done basically got stonewalled on the gooch side. Like that done drove, went cold. Like I can't go no further. Uh the plantation on the Gooch side was sold to the government and it turned it into an airbase. So there's like no books, none of that. Um, just basically just disappeared. Mm. It's like a blurry picture online. Um, so I'm doing the Campbell side. I go to the archive and I'm looking through the Andrew Jackson's papers. And so I see a name, Esquire, that okay. I also have seen on a census from 1880. So I'm like, okay, Esquire is an unusual name for 1880. And I mean, it's spelled Esquire, right? Usually a title. Um, So I see that name, I'm like, okay, Esquire. And it's on a comptroller's report from the Andrew Jackson plantation. Not a comptroller's report, I'm sorry. It's from a census assessment. And they usually don't put names of slaves on censuses. They just put Andrew Jackson and then put hash marks all the way down and just say the name and the size. So then I just Google the name, Esquire. Andrew Jackson. And the website for the Hermitage Plantation pops up immediately. Pops up. So after I see that, now I'm at the archive. After I see that, I email somebody over at the Hermitage. I can't remember her name. And I say, I think I'm related to this person. Here's the census information that I have from my family. And this is who I think I'm related to. She hits me back immediately. This is your ancestor this is a photo of your ancestor this is a bill of sale and so i go to the archive and verify the bill of sale and i'm just like you found it got it holy shit what a what a what a feeling so how many how many in, you said two years two, 15 to 17 how two many years. hours did you spend or how you know like put it into perspective for us how much time it took you to get to the place where you send that email and get that information back and boom, you found it. So I was working part-time at Cole Hahn while I was doing it. Uh, 
It's like a men's, isn't that like men's clothing? Men's like, yeah, yeah, sport. shoes, yeah, yeah. So in, in like a Green Hills mall type Oh, yeah, you were. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I was there. So I probably scrounged around like maybe like five hours, maybe like 25 hours a week. A week for two years. For two years. So 25 times 50, uh-huh. you know, is, uh, is, uh, uh, uh gosh, now I'm going to embarrass myself. Like a thousand, a thousand ten hours, right? No, a thousand hundred, eleven hundred hours, right? 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 Something like that. Some. Times two. So we're talking thousands of hours. We're talking about over two thousand. Over two thousand hours. Two thousand hours researching my family history, and through that, I'm, I will say this right here. Like, like I said before, all this folklore around my family got mm. cleared up. Yeah. Through that, because I'm yeah. finding like death certificates. I'm finding out ways that people passed away. I'm finding out like. Who we're actually related to, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Because also, people that are getting their names misspelled, mm-hmm. the person taking the census is telling them, this is how you spell your name. So I got two different sides of Campbell's. One that spelled that name with a K, one that spelled that name with a C. Oh. All because the census taker in that area kept telling them. Just told them what they're, tell, told them how to spell, spell t- their name. Different things. So we got two sets of Campbell's that live two streets over. And things like that, I was able to clear up. Yeah, we're related to them. Like, I was able to clear up just, like, certain folklore about my family, too, and then give them all of that information. So I am, you know, you've got, like, 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all that shit, right? And I've been pretty adamant about not doing it because I don't want them, like, you you know, uh, they're, they're selling yeah. your DNA to Absolutely. whoever the highest bidder is on the other end, right? Absolutely. Somewhere in the fine print, page four, you know, it says, you know, that so they're making money on 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 you later on, and I just don't, you know, I'm I'm not a conspiracy theory person, but I don't trust anybody these days. Can't. I don't think we should. No. I mean, look at our government right now, but 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 I I am intrigued by this. Like I, I'm sitting here thinking, man, how much uh, about my family do I not know? Because I mean, like, but so my dad is Guatemalan, and we look as a family, we look Latino, right? Mm-hmm. And he has a ton of relatives there. But then when all this like ancestry.com stuff started coming out, a few of my siblings did it. And we already knew that we that a lot of our lot of uh Laparis had come from, I mean, the, the, even the name is European. A lot of our, you know, family came from Italy and fr- but then once like we've ended up finding out, at least my brothers, which I assume I'm sort of like them in in in, in terms of makeup, that they're mostly, you know, Italian and French with a little bit of Guatemala. Instead of us thinking, well, we're mostly Guatemalan. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the importance of finding out where you came from, where you come from, where yeah. your people are. Yeah, and I would say like that's super important to Black folks. You know what I'm saying? Sure, where your totally. People are, yeah, where they come from because that whole if you look at just like like slavery as an institution, it erases a lot of the past. And if you don't know where you come from. It is really easy to destroy where you are now. Mm. It's really easy to do that. If there's no attachment to your surrounding, why would you ever give a fuck? Yeah. <laughs> if it's, there's none. So so I will say this. When I got to the bill of sale, I tried to finish. But I was out. I was tapped. Sure. It was just like, oh, yo, this ain't for me. This for whoever come after me who got an interest in this. So I, re- I, did, I took the information, packaged it really well. And then I did a presentation for my whole entire family, like a three-hour one. And the presentation went only 30 minutes. 
But then the rest of the time, questions, 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 questions. Because they had no clue what I was doing. Totally. They just asking. So I'll give you another one. So I have a family heirloom, right? It looks like um, it looks like two clamps. It looks like two combs that you press together, right? It's two wooden blocks mm-hmm. that have bristles at the end, and they fit together. Mm-hmm. No one knows what it is. They just like somebody gave this to us. How big is it or how small is it? Like fit so, in your hand? So so it can't fit in your hand. So it's probably about the size of a ruler. Okay. It's two of them. Yep. They both have long handles and you clamp them together. Mm-hmm. Like a like a clapper kind of thing. But they have bristles on the end that fit together. So once you put it together, it like kinda, teeth. They kind of yeah. like fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kind of stay. They mm-hmm. interlock. So I was able to find out the reason why we have that is because Esquire is a cotton gin engineer, and it is a cotton strainer that fits on a cotton gin. Been passed down through my family forever, but they had no no one had any clue what this thing was. They had no clue at all. But you found out. But I found out through finding the bill of sale. Yep. And then. Going up to the Hermitage and bringing them the cotton the the cotton strainer, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I know what that is." Yes, and so all of that information, like seeing my family's eyes light up, right? Yeah, seeing them just download so much information and just process it because we also don't have pictures, so I'm just clearing up. I'm just clearing up the oral history that has been passed yeah. down because there's bits of it that is true, but then there's bits of it that are missing. So yeah. as I'm putting the pieces of the puzzle together making the picture there's some speculation still so i had a family member that was notorious for carrying around a 22 caliber pistol even before it was cool just notorious for it and they had no idea why once i let them know that this person traveled everywhere this was a traveler so we got census information where he's not here anymore and then where he just pops back in then he pops back out so since this person is a traveler, he probably carried a firearm all the time, right? I that had another sense. cousin who would pop off just, it was just like always uh, folklore about them just having a really short fuse. Well, this person was in World War One, So we know that their brain might have been a little fucked up. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But no one knew that because no. everybody who knew the story had been gone. Mm. So just little pieces. So, yeah, that's why I do what I do on the daily. Yeah, no, that's insane. So tell me, um, at, at, how do I say this? There's so, there's so many questions here. When did you start? You clearly you clearly give a damn, right? And, you know, I you give clearly a lot of dams. You, you give a lot of dams. <laughs> was that, where did that come from? Was, that, was, was there something that happened that sparked it, or was it a gradual thing? Yeah. Did it come through this trying to find all the shit out about your family? Like, how did that happen? Because I'm always curious to discover how people, like, get, get going. So I grew up very much so in a very close, um, well, I grew up very close to violence. You know, it was kind of like all around the community I grew up in. So I grew up in a zip code in Nashville, uh, that is 37208. You know, at this point, it's like highly being gentrified like the rest of our country at this mm. point in time. But when I grew up there, it had the highest incarceration rate in the country, very specifically for the people that were born in the year that I was born in. So growing up in an environment where it's violent, and when I say violent, I'm not just talking about 
community members. That's only one form. When I'm talking about violence, I mean food deserts are violent. Yep, yep. Gentrification is mm-hmm. violent. Bad city transit is violent. Mm-hmm. Um, low economic access is violent. Um, high concentrations of poverty is violent. Mm. And so I grew up in that area. And seeing people, so I say it like this, I don't really have no homies that I grew up with. They're gone. They're gone. Mm. I made it off of my street by luck. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So growing up in that area, and my family has always been there. So when Nashville was segregated, 32nd Avenue North was a considered a colored part of town. My family lived there. When they moved from the Hermitage after the Civil War in 1865, mm. they landed directly on 32nd Avenue North. My family just sold that house. So we had always been living in those very small, confined areas in those very violent areas. So growing up in there, by the time I go to TSU, I notice like, yo, I'm the only one standing out here that don't have kids, that aren't struggling with debt, that's not, that's just not having the problems that just run rampant in violent areas. So they're really just like, why is this happening? What's going on here? What can we do about it? What can we build? And so when I went to that place, I'm just thinking, okay, I need to know who I am first before I even decide to create anything. Mm. How can I go and tell somebody, look, you need to have value in this place if I don't have no value in it? So I needed to know that story. I just needed to. I had to get it. Who's telling you all this? Are you just getting it intuitively? Do you have mentors or like, or are you just kind of seeing things, taking a step back and then assessing? Because that's not normal. I don't think it doesn't yeah. seem maybe maybe you were the, all the street smart and all the violence had yeah. compelled had caused you to be that way, but that's not normal to see what you saw because again your homies are gone. Like that seems like the more normal trajectory to experience all of that and then choose to like in, not in, or engage or get in, you know get involved in what's going on because it seems like the only way. And you were like, no, nah, I'm going this way. Well, I will say like growing up in like violent areas, like there's a strong sense of commitment. There's a strong sense of community and family. Sure. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. a strong sense yeah. of because everybody need everybody. I had I lived across the street from like a what I call a hot house. Like whatever was going on there was hot. You know what I'm saying? Um but to my memory, they were the nicest people that I could remember. Like one time some stranger came and knocked on our door. And um I remember somebody walking across the street letting us know, hey, uh, Somebody came by here earlier. They was looking around. I just thought you should know. And this is somebody who society would tell us we should be afraid of. Of course, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So seeing that twoness, you know what I'm saying? Seeing that we're in a highly violent area, but there's a sense of community and peace and love here. But also having gunshots at night, you know what I'm saying? Also seeing like, Blue lights go up and down my street all sorts of times of night. We had to end up tinting the windows because the blue lights were so heavy on my street that none of us could get sleep in the house. They would, it would light up my entire house in the middle of the night. Yeah, tint the windows on your house. That's nuts. Tent behind the bars. Sure, yeah. Which was even more wild. Yeah. Um, and my mom would probably be wild if I... She probably going to be upset I shared this story. So at one point in time... She had to show me how to knock the bars off the window just in case the house was on fire. She had to tr- show me how to do that. You know what I'm saying? But growing up in it, I would have 
I didn't notice it at all. You know what I'm saying? It was normal. Also, like, after-school programs, you know what I'm saying? Like, I did a lot of, like, African-centered after-school programs. The only instrument I know how to play is the djembe. The only other instrument I know how to play is the gunga. You know what I'm saying? So I really went through a tunis. I think W.E. Du Bois calls it a tunis. Being able to cold switch, go back and forth. That was Mm. very important. My mom also was the first black secretary in General Sessions Court. So, I live in a violent what area. Y- what year was that? Maybe like early 90s. That's wild that it was 90s and she was the first. I always want to point that out because people are going to think, oh, it was the 50s or 60s. No, like it's way sooner than we, more, way more recent than we want to. Absolutely. And it's, and it's this wild thing about being the son of a black first. It's just like a wild thing. It's a thing. Being the child of some of a black pioneer. Mm. Is wild too You know what I'm saying So I would go from Hearing gunshots at night To literally Sitting In the courtroom Or being behind the veil With judges You know what I'm saying In a traditionally white space So like I grew up Then going to an after school program That was really African centered Mm. So I grew up just really all over the place, you know what I'm saying? Being able to just like turn it on and all speak different languages because there are different languages for each one of those spaces. So I would say that whole experience just made me feel like, what's going on here? Mm. Why is it set up like this? Mm. Why are all these spaces so different all the time? I mean, literally, they'll be completely different. Just completely different. And so... I really felt the need to, once I got older, to figure that out. And so the first place I could start was just me. Like, I want to figure me out all the way. Everything that my mom has learned from her mom and her mom has learned from her mom and why they had to learn how to survive like that. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I'm in a good place now where I can actually help create things that, Help to ch- help facilitate the change that we need here, very specifically in Nashville, because we do need a lot of changes. And I know the country is experiencing all of this stuff, but Nashville, very specifically, is a place where everything always kicks off. I don't know. I mean, I know we're gonna have people saying. I know people say that about their cities because they sure. have a lot of city pride. Yeah. But you use it on no, phone. but it's true. This is one of the fast growing economies in the country, like and it by always far. has been. So since the Civil War. We've always been a transit. So during the Civil War, we were the we spent the least amount of time out of any Confederate city in the Civil War. We entered it last. The Union took us back first. Immediately. Why was that? We was a transit city. So just how we have a bunch of interstates running through here now, we had all the railroads running through here. So the idea was if the Union can come and take this over. It can dead the whole Confederacy on the whole Confederacy because they can't transport anything yeah. from coast to coast. Mm-hmm. Also, we have the largest inland Civil War fort in the country. H- largest. And this is not your regular brick and mortar. This is dry stack. This is limestone quarried out of the Cumberland, cut in flat lines by slaves, artisan slaves, masons, who can cut lime in straight lines and stacked on top of each other. Mm. The largest inland fortification in the country is built in Nashville. Mm. We also have several HBCUs that all start out as union fortifications, right? And then we fast forward to that. We fast forward even further. In 1905, we have the street 
either the streetcar or the steam car protests where black folks in this city protest the public transit because it's segregated in 1905. Then we fast forward even further. We have the Nashville student movement, right? Which desegregate, which is a protest led by young people that go to HBCUs against segregation, right? So Nashville plays this very central role when it comes to these large historical events. We even call it the volunteer state because we get the most people to volunteer for wars. That's insane. So we play, we're, we're pivotal in everything. Also, at this point, we're the headquarters for these large conglomerates. We're the headquarters of, for the CCA. So we have these things that are dynamics in Nashville that are leading other spaces in, in other countries. So, I mean, in other states. So Nashville just plays this pivotal part that I think we lose sight of sometimes. Yeah, totally. Well, let's talk about um, man. I, there's so much we could talk about there, but we'll we'll do a few of these over the next year. You know, we'll we'll get back together and do this. That's let's great. talk about uh, Gideon's army. Okay. Uh, why Gideon? Why army? Tell us all about it. So Gideon's army is a biblical reference. Yep. Um, and in in our organization is all predicated on just like it only takes a select few to make a institutional change. So we were started by a former teacher who was losing students at alarming rates to gun violence. And so she had this one particular student who said to her straight up, like, what's the point of doing any of this if I ain't going to make it to 18? That's and, a wild thought. And he but they could, had to think about that. And unfortunately, That was real. And unfortunately, it happened. He only mm. made it to 16. Mm. And so she stepped out of the classroom and created Gideon's Army to hopefully address youth violence. And so since then, we have been moving in ways to create institutional change here. So we kind of got our national notoriety in 2015 when we were the lead organization out of a coalition of organizations to release uh, what we call a Driving While Black report. That's what the report is called. And that report quantifies racial bias and police traffic stops in Nashville. So I'll give you one thing. Do right? it. So what we found out when we did the report, and this is all through public records requests. So this is public information. Is that in 2015, well, late 2015, early 2016, our police were pulling people over eight times the national rate. Very specifically, black men. Eight times the national rate. Eight times. This is four years ago. This is four years ago. And we went and presented. That's just one finding. And we went and presented this type of information to the council, City letting council. them know, look, something bad is going to happen here. We're pulling people over eight times the national rate. And unfortunately, they decided to not do anything about it. Um, and I think they tried to do things about it, but I don't really feel like it was urgent because... Driving Wild Black Report was community-based, community-led, community-everything, mm. right? So there was no institutional buy-in here. These were community members sourcing these numbers, data-mining these numbers, putting this report together, bringing up the demands. They wanted to talk about why we framing it as demands and not recommendations, right? Getting caught up in the lexicon. Sure. Not really motivated. or I don't know what was going on, but... Unfortunately, we had two people die 
right after and traffic stops, right? And then two years later, the policing report comes down here from NYU Law, releases another report that says the exact same thing, which the finding is overall traffic stops do not defer crime. Straight up. That's clear. We got national studies at this point all over the place. Traffic stops do not defer crime. And so ever since then, we have built or created systems to hopefully help transform conflict in the city. Right? So we have programming in like three different areas. So we have programmings in schools, we have programmings in communities, and we have programmings in courts. Okay. And that's to hopefully take care of our young people holistically. Mm. And when I say young people, I mean youth, young adults, and children. Um, our overall mission is to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, save our children from death and incarceration, and become a unifying force for all children in Nashville. So when it comes to the school-to-prison pipeline, do you know what that is? Yeah. Okay. But, but uh, yeah, I, I've talked with Clint Smith was on. We've for talked sure. about the school-to-prison school pipeline, but go ahead and reiterate it for oh, those okay. listening. So, so whenever I got to explain it to a community member, because I know that's said a lot, so... I usually use, like, a very easy example that people can relate to. So, like, if you are caught speeding, right, what do you get? A ticket. Okay. And if you keep getting those tickets, what happens next? You get your license taken away. A number okay. of things, potentially. And if you get caught with your license taken away, what happens? You go to jail. Okay. Great. Hot, increasing levels of corporate punishment, right? And then on the opposite end, right, we ex our young people experience the same system in schools, right? Mm. You do something wrong, you yep. get a referral. You keep getting referrals. You go to ISS. You keep going to ISS. You go out of school suspension. You go out of school suspension. You get expelled. Now, when you come back off an expulsion, our young people call that probation. Mm -hmm. So now what they've been socialized to do is accept higher levels of punitive discipline. That they might yeah, that's not there's not restorative. There's no redemption there. Uh, no. We've got our eye on you. We're and watching no everything you do. No learning. No, no learning. And yeah. but they keep dropping them in the same system, expecting for them to be changed in some sort of way. So, and even that word, right? Because you're saying they're using the word probation. Yeah. Those kids already know that that word is associated with being in prison, being in jail, and now it's being used on them while they're free in air quotes mm -hmm. in their school and so when they get out they just might accept the shit as adults yeah they've already experienced it oh i know this system I'm, i know how to navigate this like I'm, mm. I'm chilling you know what i'm saying i'm good so we've just taught our students how to experience jail like really easily you know and accept it so our programs are meant to infuse what you just said restorative into those three levels that i just mentioned schools communities and courts because we take care of our young people holistically, then we might actually be able to teach them social emotional learning, forms of accountability that are not associated with punishment and conflict de-escalation because we know all behavior is attached to some sort of conflict or all conflicts are attached to some sort of behavior. So our school-based program is called the zone, right? And that's a restorative led circle for people that have received infractions from the day before. So what happens is you do something wrong, something simple, something silly, like a cell phone, right? You text at the wrong time. Mm. You might get a referral. So instead of sending you to ISS, they send you to a community member who's been trained in conflict de-escalation, 
who's also been trained in circle facilitation and had a light sprinkling of caseload management over that. And you've talked to them about why you're doing it. So if I had to give you like a like a solid example, like two years ago, I was uh, the circle facilitator at the zone. That's what we call them, circle facilitators, because you're not just dealing with one student, you're dealing with a bunch. They're in a circle. So you're doing a traditional sure. circle. Um, and I had this student that had been written up like 15 times mm. for just walking out of class. That's all. He was just getting up, walking out of class. That's it. And so through the conversation with him, he let me know, like, I'm not going to start walking out of class. And so I just simply asked him why. He let me know that he had an uncle that was confined, and that's the only time his uncle could call. Very straight up. So I asked for his permission. Can I take it back to the teacher? And uh, he said, yeah. So I took it back to the teacher. The teacher requested a circle with the student. So I set both of them down. We worked out an agreement where he could stop disrupting class, still answer his uncle's phone call, and not get in, not get ISS over Amazing. and over again. Because yeah. by the time you get the 15 referrals, it don't matter the context no more. It's about yeah. the 15. It's about yeah, the 16. They're looking at numbers. Numbers. Yep. A- exactly. So that's very much so the zone. Also, the circle facilitator usually lives in and around or lives around the school. So the kid knew me from, like, the grocery store, the basketball court. So it wasn't nothing new really going on. He just didn't know what I did. Yeah. So that flattened out all the power dynamics in the room, and that really allowed this kid to come and actually have a conversation. So that's the type of things we do in schools. And then it has been proven to lower suspension. I want to say, excuse me if these numbers are wrong, Nashville, but for the two years it was up and running at Pearl Cone High School, which is in the zip code that has the highest incarceration rate. In the 37208. Yes. It lowered suspension. Suspension's rate that's both in school and out of school suspension by 70 plus percent. Holy shit. In two years. Right? That doesn't That's mean, a huge number. That doesn't mean the behavior wasn't happening anymore. That means sure. but that means that the system was built where we can actually start teaching students. And that's what was happening. The students were learning. And also peace agreements were being made between the student and the teacher. So we have a navigating of power dynamics that are like improving our mm. young people's lives really easily. Also, through those conversations, you might get something like, hey, I ain't eating in two days. So it's very hard for anyone to pay attention. Yeah, there's so many factors there. I was thinking about that as you've been talking, like how many things are going on. Uh, you know, you ask some simple questions of that kid. And now really you find simple. out, you, I got to take the phone call. It's the only time he can call. I want to talk to him. And, I, He's, and, I, and I'll say I probably even called the uncle. I want to say I called the uncle. One time he came out of class, he brought the phone to me, and I let the uncle know what was going on. Yeah. So now we just did whole family wraparound services, and we know that's what our young people need if we want them to change their their behavior or if we want them to change their relationship to conflict. Yep. They need services. We need whole families to be resourced and secured to change anything. But it's easier in the prison system or in our schools to just start checking them, you know, up to 15 and then you're this and then, you know, any more this happens. Like it's easier to do that. And I don't even, you know, I'm I'm kind of seeing now I have three kids in school. They're all in elementary, uh, you know, elementary school. But now seeing just how intense it is to be a teacher, like 
I kind of feel, I mean, it's, it is such a hard job. It doesn't excuse yeah. the shitty things that happen to these kids, but it's a hard job. And I will say teachers love us because we, they know we stopping stuff that they can't yeah. stop. We also know that they ain't going to have to deal with it no more. They mm. know that. Sure. Also, uh, when it comes to the zone, anybody can request a circle. Students can request a circle with a teacher. Teacher can request a start circle with a student. Teacher can request a starting with an ad administrator. Admin can request a circle with somebody else. So when the whole thing is administered, we have an accountability measure that is not based on harsh punishment really easily. And what we're building is a community. We've been in community agreements, community peace, community de-escalation learning, all at one point in time. So the school kind of transformed. You have this, you have this, what, what once was was a rigid power hierarchy mm -hmm. gets turned over and we get a system of shared power, like immediately. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, within two years, we were already there. Um, and now we're at McKissick doing like a school assessment because that's a middle school and it looks different. Because also, like, the thing about the zone is it has to be tailor-made to fit your school. Like, every school is going to be different. Everybody's going to have different dynamics. And what I also will say, the <coughs> excuse me, the principal at Pearl at the time, she gave us pretty much, she was just like, we want this done, get it done. And we got mm. it done. Mm. We got it done. So that's our school portion. Yeah, yeah. Now we got community and courts, right? Great, man. You was probably a great student growing up. Oh, right? I was good. I was. <laughs> With that type of memory right there. That was wild. So community, our community section is our violence interruption program, right? That's where we treat violence like a public health. And this is a model that's used all around the world. So it's the cure violence model that comes out of Chicago. Mm. And we're the first mm. time in cure violence history that a grassroots organization is trying to implement this model. So we're not an official cure violence site. Right. But I love cure violence. Their model fits restorative because it's all relationship yep. based. Yep. So what we try to do is what, what we what we say is we try to interrupt the transmission of violence, right? So if you look at a map of gun violence and you put it next to a map of the flu, it's going to pull. It's going to look very similar because gun violence, violence pulls and clusters like a disease, straight up. It's transferred community member to community member. So if me and you lived in an area, mm. right, if we were next door neighbors and you had something violent happen to you, you came back and tell me, even if I'm your friend, it's going to put me in a, like even if I'm trying to take, even if I'm trying to be. Like a neutral Defensive. That, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, if, sure, sure. Even yeah. if I'm trying to come to your defense, yep. I'm still going to be in a violent state, yep. right? And if we don't know each other, most likely whatever harm you com commit after that is going to be in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You take it home. But what I what our violence interrupters is what we call them. We interrupt the transmission of violence. So the way you interrupt violence is on one end you de-escalate, right? Because we know most traditional gun violence is attached to a basic disagreement. And then on the opposite end, you try to stop the retaliation. Peace build. So if you can build peace, de-escalate, then you actually interrupt the transmission of violence all wow. day long. Yeah. Really easily. Mm. Um, and so what we do is we go into the community, we canvas high crime areas or areas that I experienced a lot of gunshots, just so everyone knows, 
The area code 37208 has one-third of all gunshots happening in Nashville. And how many zip codes are there in Nashville? That's a lot. A lot? That's a lot. That's a lot. And one zip code has a third of all of them. And I know, so that's considered North Nashville, right? That's considered I'm in 37209 in West Nashville. Uh-huh. So we're kind of neighbors. It is a border. Yeah, we're, we're, I can get to where, I can get to North in like in like and, seven or eight minutes. And I will say the violence spills out that way. Sure. Too. So, like I said, it clusters. But I will say one third of all happens in one little area. It's wild. You know what I'm saying? And that's not a, and that's not an indictment on the people that live there. No, 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 no. We're talking it's about all these systemic things that, that, that attribute and that help and that encourage those kinds of things that happen. Absolutely. So we canvassed that area. We interrupt the violence in that area. And I will say, we've probably been up and doing it probably like the last seven months. And we've had a 7% decrease in violent crimes in that area. That's all crime. That's all violent crimes. Now, our number one goal, our number one mission is gun violence. That's what we address. But all the other violence is predicated on gun violence too, Right. When you say you're, uh, sorry to interrupt, when you say you're canvassing, like obviously I, I know what that means, but like what are you doing? Because you, you were just canvassing before you walked into this interview, right? Sure. And so like what does is, what is that entail? So we just so we just walk through neighborhoods, really. Just we meet neighbors, meet people outside, just kick it with them. The people that I'm with, so in order to be what we call a violence interrupter, you have to be a credible messenger. Sure, yeah. That means that you were once a part of the problem that you're trying to solve. It mm. also means that you have a great community reputation right now. So when we're walking through those areas, we're seeing people we know. It's five of us. We're seeing people we know. we we hollering at people, seeing what they need. You know, we're giving out phone numbers. We just keep in touch with people. Because if when violence happens, we have to rely on our relationships in order to stop it. Yep. So when we're out on campus and we hollering at people, if we got some literature or event coming up, we're giving that out. We're seeing where people's heads at. we just checking in. And we do that every single day, unless it's raining. And that's just really hard to do. But we hollering at folks, you know what I'm saying? We're still in a relationship-building portion because since we're so grassroots, and usually when it comes to this type of model, it's usually the government that's bringing them in, but we don't really have time to wait here. Sure. Don't really have time to wait. And the violence that we're experiencing, it's going to take something radical. It's going to take something creative. And it's going to take something community-led in Mm -hmm. order to solve it. Because it's a disease. So if you're only taking people out and you're not actually curing or vaccinating what's going on, then it's just going to keep being there. Yep. So it's cyclical. It's mm-hmm. all. It's just mm-hmm. gonna be a cycle over and over again. And so what I'm hoping is that the violence interruption actually ends it. And like I said, we're close. We're we have an area that is probably cure violence came down did an assessment like three years ago. They said the area of North Nashville needs twelve violence interrupters. We have five. We was able to drop it seven percent in the last year. You get all twelve. It's only a matter of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And these are people doing what they're natural at. So our violence interrupters have been trained in. Same thing as our circle facilitation. De-escalation. And restorative justice. And we just let them loose. 
and we out in the community, hollering at people, letting them know what's going on, and just trying to build peace as much as possible, pe- pushing peace. Because mm. we need to be taught. We need radical conflict transformation because we do not teach our children how to de-escalate. No, we don't. And everything around us is telling us and socializing us to escalate. Mm-hmm. It is. And when we talk about behavior train- change, we need to change people's behavior towards violence and towards conflict. Because without that behavior change, we just gonna get caught in a rat race. It's just gonna keep happening over and over and over and over again. And it's not gonna slow down. So that's what our programs are really tailored to do is deprogram people for violence and give them the tools necessary to de-escalate and not continuously escalate things. There's no uh violence in our home, but there's a there's a parallel that I'm seeing with, you know, I, I have th- three little kids. And um I have one daughter who just freaks the fuck out about everything. She is amazing. She's yeah. wonderful. She's talented. But little things set her off. Yeah. And um, I have been known. I'm a very passionate person, and I get very excited about things, including when I'm trying to help my daughter. Like, this is not worth it. Why are you freaking out about this? But I have a very intense face. And so I will come in. And I will say, I will find myself, my wife is so, she's such an angel of a parent. She's so much better than me at parenting. But I will be telling my daughter to settle down, to stop freaking out about this while I have a face that is expressing freak out and the opposite of settle down. Because I'm so annoyed that this thing is is so crazy. Like, it's not that, it's not worth it. Why are you getting so upset? But all I'm, my face not even my voice. Sometimes my voice, I, I can get a little loud and, and you know, I've had to apologize a billion times to my kids, but it's that whole thing of, you know, what my wife has been clear with me is like, okay, she, she is seeing your face. She is receiving that energy and it's only escalating it. It's doing the opposite of what you want to see happen. Right. And so that's a very, again, that's a nonviolent, uh, kind of parallel to what we're seeing here where my goal is so you, I'm I'm doing that because your your violence interrupters are people that I was going off the whole de-escalation thing like so many like our cops right like cops are were, they're not trained in de-escalation therefore we have um we have b- black men and black women you know being being terrorized and shot uh you know in their vehicles for doing nothing wrong for driving from one place to the other right because they're not trained they think. Well, I, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't see what's going on. So I need to be forceful. I need to be loud. I need to be commanding. And then one thing leads to the other. And then a firearm is pulled. It's shot. And then a life is lost for nothing, right? Because there was there was no – I think de-escalation is something that all of us in our homes, at school, out and about, and especially for black people, right, mm-hmm. that there there is so much – there's so there's so many stigmas and so many uh, things that we've been taught as a culture to you know when we see somebody or see somebody driving or walking on the street, and uh, we we have to do a much better job as parents and as citizens mm-hmm. and as just friends and as community members and as police officers to really learn the art of de-escalation. Yeah, yeah, and I will say like as a whole, like we need radical conflict management transformation too. It's like a yeah, it's just like we're, we're, with our young folks, we forget like they are, and, and what and what you what you just the story you just told me triggered this. What what we forget about our young folks is they are a reflection of us. Oh yes, 
we can't, and I tell, we talk about this all the time and as a staff. We can't be out here telling people not to be violent and we violent. That's not going to work. Every issue that we are dealing with is a reflection of us. Our young people are a reflection of us. We are a reflection of our parents. We're looking at ourselves. And we've got to break the fucking cycle. We've got to break the cycle. And the only way we're going to break the cycle is if we download and we learn. That's the only way we're going to do it and actually live it out. We're modeling behaviors for everyone. Everyone is modeling. Every single person. Whether they're your parent, whether there's any type of power dynamic there, you're always modeling. Mm. And until we start modeling behaviors of conflict management, of de-escalation, of restoring our relationships that have been harmed, it won't ever stop. Yeah. It just won't. Yeah. And restoration always exists. It always does. You can restore anything, literally. That's so true. Anything is just a decision. And so... We do that often with Gideon's Army. We are very, 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 very direct when it comes to you having to display whatever behavior you want your child to have. It starts with you. I had a niece, right? Uh, and I hope she don't kill me. But when she was young, She's nameless, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> she might kill me, though. Yeah. When she was younger, uh, her teachers would be like, look, she needs to read, she needs to read, she needs to read, she needs to read, she needs to read. My immediate question to my people around you is, when was the last time she saw one of her parents read? That's so true. Average adult won't read one book this year so, entirely. So why do we have an expectation that our young people are going to yep. read? That don't make sense. Yep. That does not make sense. Yep. That does not make sense. So we are a reflection of our young folks. So our violence interrupters have that's why it's very important that they have come out on the better end of an adverse uh, they have come out of an adverse situation mm. for the better sure because they can't teach change to nobody else if they ain't changed themselves they can't tell somebody who's living in a certain area that they need to be different if they're not different in that same space so it is very important to us over at Gideon's army that we display the behavior that we want other people to have what about in the courts? <coughs> so the third the third space you all work in. Once again, a great student. So courts, we do a lot of things in the courts. So we're trying to get a pre-trial and re-entry program for adult people up off the ground. And that's hopefully going to really take a jump once the community courts take off. Um, a couple of years ago, we helped write a program that's a juvenile divergence program here in Nashville. We don't run the program, but we helped write it. So mm. we're really hoping that our court piece pops off because we need to start deprogramming people from violence, right? Because if you coming out of a place of confinement, that is a very violent place to be in. Oh, yeah. It's every man and woman for him or herself. Exactly. Yeah, you're just trying to survive. And they've, and they've been socialized to handle things a certain way. So we need to really be intentional about deprogramming people from violence. That's just just that's just how it needs to be across the board. And so I'm really hoping with these three programs, we really try to take care of whole families, right? Yeah. Because there's a couple of facts. One, 
You cannot police or arrest a problem away. You just can't. Nope. If you have it's a, a band aid and a terrible one, and it's as gonna, we've seen historically. And it's gonna keep popping off. Yep. It's gonna keep hurting. Yep. Let me put it like this, right? I'm an old country boy. Old country boy. Like I said, my whole family from here. And if you like a country, most likely you live near a body of water. I live near a lake. So if the fish in the lake keep rising to the top, mm-hmm. right? You're not just gonna keep pulling fish out of the lake because there's something wrong with the water. Mm-hmm. So we have got yeah, don't drink that shit. Don't don't yeah, you don't right. wanna and we have gotten really good as a society at fish solving problems, right? Maybe that fish shouldn't swim this way. Maybe that fence fish needs some guidance. We'll even take one fish out that managed to survive and put them back in the toxic water and be like, all right, teach these other fish how to swim in here and survive, right? Mm. We even incentivize that even more. But what we do is we need lake restoration. Mm-hmm. And let me just give you a hint. The fresh water in a lake is at the bottom. Yeah. Usually the low fish are the ones that are not experiencing the toxic water. So when we talk about these things, I think a lot of the times we keep it at fish level and we just need to start ch- start talking about lake level. We need to start talking about institutions that have historically hurt people, that have historically taken advantage of people in vulnerable communities, and we need to start either creating alternative systems or we need to start radically changing the system that we're a part of if we ever expect said thing to end. Do you know uh, Raheem Buford? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was on the good podcast people. a few months ago. Very good people, and he, I just saw a picture of him with Brian Stevenson. The movie, the film, Just Mercy, just came out. Saw it last night. Yeah. What f- thoughts? Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna be honest. Go. I'm gonna be really honest here. Sometimes movies like that, being a historian, an activist, an organizer, and a nonprofit director, trigger the fuck out of me. Mm. Because we're in it so often. Mm. So when I'm looking at those movies, I'm thinking about the people that I'm serving. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's difficult sometimes. But what I will also say is this is a moment where we can actually start talking about. I hope so. Carceral punishment. Yeah. And how it's not good. No. And so I really did appreciate Just Mercy for starting to ignite that conversation because I think sometimes, and this is something that I struggle with, just generally, sometimes I have these conversations so often that people that don't sometimes just get on my nerves. Yeah. I'm just like, you don't see all of this nope. toxic water around you? But then I have to remember, it's hard to tell a fish that they swimming in water. Yeah. It's just hard Yeah, to and sometimes that. it takes, you know, uh, unfortunately, and I think it is unfortunately, but unfortunately sometimes it takes a uh, major motion picture, right, uh, a big film with Michael B. Jordan. And, you know, it takes something big to get people to realize how fucked up things are. For sure. They're not going to listen to Jimmy O'Campbell Gooch in Nashville, Tennessee in the 37208 zip code. For sure. Because is it really that bad? And then you hear, or or like Raheem sharing his story, it's like, well, okay, that was one guy. But then you kind of see how... You see how fucked up the whole Brian Stevenson thing was, how crazy it was, how insane it was that this guy was going to go away for, you know, like to kind of and, – and, and for it to be on such a big platform. And, I, again, I think that's unfortunate yeah. that people don't listen 
to the smaller voices that are in it every single day. And yeah. you kind of got to get the big thing. Yeah. But, you know, I'm still grateful that now that conversation is happening at a much different level. I mean, Chris Saka, billionaire investor, he he funded part of the film. Like now you have people that have historically been putting their money into building tech companies yep. saying, I want to put some of my money into making this film a reality, you know? So the, the conversation's happening at a much bigger level on multiple issues. But this one needs to happen because there are so many, there are so many, I mean, we have tens of thousands of primarily black men that are in prison today for selling weed, smoking weed, whatever. Something that I do on a regular basis. And I'm not a white guy, but I'm Latino. I'm I'm fair skinned compared, you know? Yeah. And it's like something that I do and that a lot of my homies do on a regular basis. And I don't fear, you know, mm. I don't fear ever going away for that. There are people in prison for a long, long time for that, or even for an actual crime. Like with Raheem, it was an accident. You know, it, it wasn't something he intended to do, but he's in prison for 26 years mm. for killing someone. Mm. And, but then coming out, like you said, now all they know is survival. All they know is they have been kept like an animal in a cage for 26 years, 15 years, 30 years, whatever. And now, they come out and they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to live. Mm-hmm. They are handed a, you know, a bag of belongings when they walk out. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, go t- figure your shit out. Mm-hmm. And in a year, in six months, in 18 months, they're going to be back in there again because no one is helping them figure out what does life look like now, 26 years later? How do I get a job now? How do I want to lead a decent life? How do I do that? I have no idea how to do that. And that's why I say we need just well-resourced communities. We need well-resourced families. We just need more resources and pockets of poverty because that's the only way we're going to end things. Right. Like even when it comes to just like violence, it's usually attached to a basic need. Of course. So if we fix that basic need, we actually end that violence. We have to move from, and I'm, uh, yeah, we're going to have to move from eliminate and alleviate. We got to start eliminating things, not alleviate, which means just to make it hurt less. We got to get out of that mode. You know yeah. what I'm saying? We've been in that mode for a decade, like hundreds of years. Yeah. We got to start eliminating things. The only problem is, is that there's profit in just making it hurt worse. There's no profit in eliminating it because you're putting yourself out of business. So if we're always trying to make a profit, it's always just going to be alleviated, which is going to let the oppression just change. You know what I'm saying? Like I've I've been really excited around this invest, divest language that we've been talking lately. You know, it's like just a movement around the country of divesting out of things that are hurting people in investing in things that are servicing people like you just talked about, mm-hmm. right? Because that movie was a service, you know? It It's it's guiding this narrative, this national conversation about reframing punishment and accountability, which yep. is what we need, right? Sitting in a cell isn't teaching you anything. Like, you might make the best of the 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 thing, you know what I'm saying? You might make the best of the punishment, which our brains do, but you don't deserve to be in there. Not for nonviolent offenses. Now, we can get into the weeds and sure, talk about other sure. things, but the invest divest language is just really sparking my brain off when it comes to just talking about these issues because we do need wholesale buyout. But when you buy out of things, it's human behavior. You we need you to be participating in something else. 
I can't ask you to buy out of one thing and not opt into something else. You know what I'm saying? Just like I can't talk to you about food. I can't be like, look, hey, you don't need to eat that if I ain't willing to feed you. That don't make sense at all. And that's all we're doing right now is don't do that, don't do that, that, you know, and not offering the actual service. The the and, and and one that is healthy and good for them and, and showing them how to get it and take it and all of that stuff. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, and I and I'm definitely a, like a like a visionary and an idealist. And I think that we can come to a place where we are creating things that are solution based. I don't think we have to keep participating anymore. If you got an idea, you can create it. And I'm pretty sure you can find the people to help you create it. Every, at every step of the way, even when we was organizing to get the community oversight board, people told us several things. And this is usually the way the system responds when you try to change it. We've been doing it. We already noticed it, and we're trying to change it. Or we don't really care about what you're saying. We don't really have time mm. for that. The system responds in those three ways every single time. So... You got to push through it because it's going to take a lot of work to change something, but it's well needed because we need alternative systems to help us buy out of these things. We literally have to start teaching people other ways of living in order to get them to stop living in a way that's detrimental to the whole entire community. And that's where we're at. I think that's where we're at. I think it's a lot of potential and where we are right now because we see changes and we have tools, right? We have the internet. We have social media. We can find our crowds. We can find our change crowds. We can find our coalitions really easily. Mm. We can do it with enough effort. But we got to do the work. Yeah, on that note, are you, so you, you, you your family has been here uh, since before Nashville was incorporated as a city. And before Tennessee was a state. Before Tennessee, so before, sorry, before Tennessee was a state, I mean, which yeah, is yeah. even bigger than Nashville, you know. <laughs> You guys have been here for a long fucking time. Are you here for the, like, do you have any plans to move on or is Nashville like your, this is where you're going to leave your mark in history? I mean, Nashville's my home. You know what I'm saying? It'll always be my home. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to getting, I'm going to get it tattooed on my back sooner or later. But yeah, it's my, this my, this my shit. I mean, I ain't going to never turn down any other opportunity to create change on a larger scale. But also, it's just like, at this point in time, now is everywhere and everywhere is now. So I could live in Nashville and not be here. True. You know what I'm saying? 100%. Really, really is just like the way we're set up now. And that's yeah. only going to get faster and quicker and move yep. even faster. Yep. yep. So um, I think so. I think so. This will always be home, though. Yeah, and I do get a satisfaction on fixing a problem that my family has always experienced. Mm. We've always lived in violent areas. We've always done it. You're you're breaking cycle, man. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, it, and it helps it makes me feel good to break it for other folks too. You yeah. know what I'm saying? To to help it along. Because all you can do is give a person information. And usually when we're giving them information, like it's our assumptions on what they do with the information that ends up breaking our heart. You know what I'm saying? So I try not to make no assumptions, but when people hear about the programs that we offer at Gideon's Army, when people hear about the work that we're doing, they want to know how they can plug in. You know what I'm saying? They want to know how they can help. And everyone has value and it's going to take a village. It's going to take a full village. As you're creating these system structures, processes, are you thinking, 
Like, does Gideon's Army ever grow and you guys can replicate this and, you know, in Chicago and in Miami and in Tuscaloosa and, you know, all over the place? Or are you mainly thinking, no, this is for Nashville. We'll think about that later or somewhere in between. So somewhere in between, we're, we're definitely thinking about how can we expand into all metro public schools? Because that's where our young people are. That's where they're being socialized. And that's where they have to spend eight hours of their day. So hopefully we can get into each metro public school and actually have a violence interrupter, community member, and circle facilitator just taking care of that school because that's all you need. That's it. And we talk about this often. And and more information around that 7%, right? North Precinct is having the largest, well, I ain't going to say that. MMPD is having a shortfall of officers, Right? North Precinct has a shortfall of officers, but it had the largest drop in violent crime out of all the other precincts in Nashville. Wow. So the community got to be doing something, Mm -hmm. even if they don't acknowledge it. Yeah. We know the community is doing something out there. And what I think is happening, I think our violence interrupters are spreading peace, actually teaching people how to be peaceful, and it is really taking effect. And so hopefully, as we keep doing these numbers, as we keep lowering crime in North Nashville, hopefully we can start getting the other zip codes. Like, I can't remember the zip codes, but JCUC, JC Napier, you know, Antioch, because also people are being displaced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the pockets of poverty are moving. Yeah. Gentrification is pushing a lot of that outside the city. It looks good for a while, but it has to go somewhere. And so in order to get ahead of that, we're looking and doing assessments on other areas that we might be able to plug into. Because at the end of the day, since we're not government funded, since we're not bought, since we don't have high levels of buy-in from our local infrastructure when it comes to the traditional system, people have to decide to let us in. And we're really doing an assessment of other areas to see where we can find more allies, to see where we can get more stability. Also, we need to make sure this is sustainable too. You know what I'm saying? Because since we are community-funded, community-driven, and community-powered, we really have to hit the ground fundraising all the time Mm. because models show that once this system is introduced – the people are relying on this to keep the peace because once you take it away, it the community loses a lot sure, yeah. just by taking it away. So we've really been trying to focus on being sustainable, getting a lot of resources, getting a lot of capital coming in to where that we can get to the point where we can start really making sure that we have well-resourced families because that's the only thing – that's going to solve this issue. And when I say families, I mean real resource communities because it's going to take a village in order to stop this. What's how, coming? How is Gideon's Army funded? Is it mostly you know in individual donors or do you guys get right. grants? or how, how does that happen? So we get a little grants every now and then, but, but the majority of grants that we get are match grants. So you got to have capital up yep. front. Yep. So the capital that we fronting is usually provided by low-dollar reoccurring donations from community members who see the services, and they see the impact. So that's usually how we're funded up, you know. That's why we're small. That's why we're only in 37208. 
because it, the hope is that we can really get these city officials to buy in. And I will say our community members and our people on the ground are demanding this. They're demanding that they get bought, that we get buy in. But Nashville's budget struggles mm. and unreliable, yeah, Nashville budget struggles. I don't want to say that. Nashville's budget struggles are really hindering some of the progress that we could see in the city because we're growing. So the problems that we have now are only going to get worse mm. unless we're talking about fixing them. And I will say areas the size of Nashville that have this type of violence interruption program that is funded by the city experience like 70% drops in violence, 80% drops in violence. They have whole streets in Chicago that haven't had a violent gunshot since they've been there. So if we really apply this model and we really get buy-in from, from, from the city, we can really make some equitable change here. We have a new mayor as of three or four months ago. We do. How do you, do you, do you uh, feel excited? Do you feel, do you anticipate um, collaboration and positive change with this new government? Or, I mean, it's, it's early to tell, but you know, but uh, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's real. Yeah, you're right. It is early to tell. Um, We have allies all over the place. You know what I'm saying? I do know, I do think the mayor is an ally. But like I said before, it's just really difficult to turn that into real equitable change. Actual, it, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. It's difficult to turn yep. it into action. We have allies all over the place. Teachers love us. Mm. Any service provider loves us because they know that we stopping what they can't stop. And we ain't stopping it with a heavy hand. We stopping it with, let me see what you need first. We stopping it by getting people off the offense, having them slow down, take their time, give them what their needs are, and then, and then we interrupt the transmission of violence. So, I mean, I, I mean, I'm really hoping that this local government, uh, I'm really hoping, you know, I'm holding out hope for this local government, but also the change ain't going to come from no politician, no, no government. If that isn't clear at this point, that we, <laughs> we cannot put our hope in president, governor, senator, congressman or woman, uh, mayor, council man, men or woman, like they help and hopefully they've got, hopefully they have integrity and a good heart and a good reason for being in that position. And that's, as we can see on many levels right now, not the case, but we cannot try. I mean, right now we're kind of seeing it, right? I even get caught up in it sometimes, you know, we're, we're in, you know, we're about to do the the democratic primary and, you know, you get all excited about these different candidates, right? I've got my like top two or three that I'm excited about and I think they're going to bring change. And it's like, the reality is like, Nick, just sit back for a second. That person, if they become the nominee and then become the president, they will not be able to do 85% of what they're saying right now. So I have to take everything. I believe they want to do all of that, but they can't. The position was never promise the world and then accomplish it. You know what I'm saying? Again, at a presidential level, all the way down to our local mayor. And this is a big city. This is not like, you know, Tulsa or like a smaller. This is a big economy in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But still, it's one mayor in one city mm-hmm. uh, and then all the people working with and for him. We can't do it. We've we are you know my buddy in in Atlanta, Kareem. He's his company is called We, and their tagline, which is not you know they're they're borrowing it from a bunch of different ideas, but we are the ones that we're waiting for. Like stop waiting for for it them him her to come. We 
It's up to us. We're it. Yeah. You see something wrong? Fucking do something about it. Yeah. Or stop whining about it, complaining about it, look the other, whatever you choose to do. But stop waiting for someone to come and give you some sort of a handout, some sort of a thing. Like we have to have our eyes open, our hearts open, ready to serve. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we got to give a damn. You know what I'm saying? We do. We got to give a damn, and we got to enter these conversations honest, open. We got to do some thinking about our flaws, and we got to really build community because that's the only way it's going to solve. It's only I am a person about relationships. Unless we got a good relationship, it's not going to be solved. And, and yeah, it is up to our politicians to show our interest, but it is up to us to buy out, though. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. It's up to us to buy out. So, yeah, no, nah, I totally agree. Like, yeah, like these politicians are great, but also, like, I don't ever expect for them to not to do anything out of their self-interest. Yeah. At the end of the yeah, because they're trying. I mean, they get in and then they're trying to going to try to get reelected, and they start almost from day one yeah. to, you know, try to try to get you know try to work on their next campaign. Yeah, right, we're that, seeing and, we're seeing that so much, and that's why our focus is with just like community members and education, because we know if we start with education, we can actually get people to do what's in their best interest. You know, um, I've been just really kicking this idea around coalition building. And I've been looking up things because it's going, like I said, it's going to take a full village. So we're going to have to build coalitions, especially around problems that we solve. And I found some good literature that basically said, set common core values, talk about when the coalition is over. First two, first two conversations. Set, set a really good goal that is a marker for when it's done. Mm. And, I mean, you can rebuild it after that. Sure. But it'll stop people from butting heads because I think what conflict is inevitable. So if we if we set a coalition in a community and we don't know when it ends or when we go our separate ways, it's gonna run its course. So I so I really think that like you said, it's up to us. We have to build these things that we want to see. We have to present these solutions, and also we really gotta open our minds because. I was telling the homie the other day, it's unfair. You know what I'm saying? It's definitely unfair for people out here to have to be presenting their own solutions at all times. That's a lot of pressure. That's a shit ton of pressure to put on community members and have them thinking that they're supposed to be presenting their own solutions. And we need to be bringing community members to the table with their own source of power. Not No tokenism. And that's what happens in our system for some mm. reason. I mean, we know why, but the tokenism just will destroy anything, right? Yep. Like taking yep. that fish out, like this is the fish that survived. Now teach everybody else. And so we just really, I think, like you said before, man, I just, I definitely see the hope out here because everyone knows that it's a problem. So we ain't got to just yeah. like yeah. argue over none of that shit no more because <clears throat> we know that it's a problem. So we can actually come to the table and start talking solutions. Let's wrap. Let's begin to wrap up bang, this bang. this uh, uh, at least round one of our conversation. For sure. we'll, we'll do other rounds. Um, how old are you? You're young. I just turned thirty. Dude, you're so young. I love it. <laughs> so I predict you living a long and happy life. So we're looking at like another 80, 80, 85, 90, especially with all the, you know, Elon Musk's going to figure some shit out and we're going to live to 120, 30. I'm, I'm all in. We're going to I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for it. 
But I, you know, you you live a long and happy life full of damn. I'm, I'm going to paint a scenario real quickly, then ask you a question. Mm-hmm. You live a long and happy life, serving people, Gideon's army, whole bunch of other shit. You live well. You give lots of dams, and you get to the end of your life, you pass away, and for some odd reason, in this scenario I'm painting, this picture I'm painting, I am giving your eulogy. So everyone's gathered. All of the people you've served, everybody in 37208, all the things you've gone on to do, your family, your friends, everybody's there to honor, mourn, celebrate your life and legacy. In a few sentences, what do you hope that I would say about you on that day? Something to the effect of Jamel was powerful in the place that he stood. Jamel was powerful in the place that he stood. Well, I don't think it's something to the effect of. That, that's that's I it. I always want to be powerful in the yeah. place that I'm standing. Mm. That's it. Because that could be transferred everywhere. Yeah, it can. So that's what I would want everyone to remember. He was powerful. I love it. What What do you want people to do after this conversation is over? Where can they go find you, uh, Gideon's Army, uh, if they want to get involved or if they just want to keep tabs on what's going on? Yeah, so I got a couple of streams. So do it. Uh, I have a page called Black Storian, B-L-A-C-K, Storian. Um, if you want to see some good... We didn't even talk about that at all. No, we did. So we, yeah, so sure. You yeah, yeah, it's very, yeah. Narrative, feel free to follow me there. Uh, people don't know that that's me either. So keep that on the low. Okay. Uh, Nashville Red on all social media is my personal account. So if you go to Nashville Red in your bio, it actually has you know a link to Black Story in there. They can they can follow everything from if they Absolutely. go to Nashville Red. Yes. So if you just Google Nashville Red, I'll pop up. Um, if you want to get involved with Gideon's Army, go to Gideon's Army United dot org. Hit volunteer. Hit donate. Do what you can do. You know. Every, every little bit helps. Every little bit. Literally. So I think sometimes people stop because they're like, oh, I can't do 100, 500, 1,000. It's like, no, no, no. Like, skip a few lattes, send a few bucks. That fucking helps. Absolutely. And like I said before, most of our donations are small dollar. Small, yeah. You know what I'm they saying? Small up. dollar reoccurring donations. So, yeah, you can also follow us on, at Gideon's Army United on all social media platforms. And just plug in, man. And also, feel free to just let me know what you think about this. I'm pretty good about my dms that's how i connect with my young folks slide into those dms right <laughs> for sure just for not for sure. some netflix and chill nah for nah, like nah. work for work for collaboration and, got, and also if you got a comment question all yeah. that you know what i'm saying that's the only way we're gonna build is through honest conversation and dialogue dialogue there are no opposing ends it's a circle jamil jamil jamel that both of those are good both work jamil campbell gooch thank you so much for joining me on the show today Everyone, I think, will enjoy, will have enjoyed this conversation at this point. Um, you're awesome. Let's do it again soon. Blessings. There you have it, friends. Many thanks to Jamil for spending time with us on the podcast today. If you have any questions or thoughts about this conversation, you can find me anywhere and everywhere on the socials at Nick Lapara or at Let's Give a Damn. Make sure to follow Jamil on social media. He's at Nashville Red on all social media. And you can follow Gideon's Army at Gideon's Army United on all social media. They're doing hugely important work, so follow along. 
This show is created by me, edited by Chad Snavely, and the music is by our friend Propaganda. Please share this episode with people you like and with people you don't like. Just make sure you share it. We put a lot of time and love into these podcast conversations, and we want to get them to as many damn givers as possible. Just a reminder that it will take you less than 15 seconds. Hit the share button in your podcast app, copy the link, and send it to your friends right now. I can't wait to spend time with you next week, friends. So much love to each and every one of you. Peace.